You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Uh, hi there, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's Friday, December the 10th. We were with you quite late yesterday when Rishi and I were just giving you an instant reaction to the news that jockey Robbie Dunn had been found guilty on four charges um, surrounding the bullying and persistent harassment of jockey Bryony Frost. Uh, the British Horse Racing Authority, after we had uh, finished our podcast yesterday, then announced the penalty. They suspended him for an 18-month period, effective immediately, three months suspended, he has seven days in which to lodge notice of an appeal. No uh, appeal has been lodged as I speak to you now at 9.43 UK time. Uh, Lydia Hislop joins me. Lydia, there's an awful lot to, to talk about and we probably won't be able to cover everything we, we want to, but it's fair to say that the sport as a whole and its governing structures went into something of a meltdown last night after Robbie Dunn's sentencing was, was announced. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, the British Horse Racing Authority held a press briefing at half past four um, after the um, proceedings of the Judicial Panel of the Disciplinary Panel had concluded. And that involved um, Tim Naylor and the Chief Executive of the British Horse Racing Authority, Julie Harrington. And they were trying to strike quite a conciliatory tone um, in terms of um, thanking Bryony Frost for bring, coming forward um, for, with her courageous evidence, as they termed it, um, but also trying to stress that the, what had come out of the disciplinary panel was a, a message for the entire industry and not just for the jockey population. Um, and this, um, I think, was uh, contrasted with the um, words that were used by um, their uh, the council, the BHA's council, Louis Weston, um, in the proceedings when he was talking about the culture being rancid. Now, there's been a bit of um, sort of interplay on um, what he meant by that. Um, the BHA have stressed that um, if it was acceptable to threaten people and use offensive misogynistic language, then the culture would be rancid. But the fact is that that is unacceptable. That's what they are saying that Louis Weston said. However, um, the jockeys as a population and the Professional Jockeys Association have um, taken umbrage if you know, if they needed to be offended more than they have been by the, the way in which this process has played out, then this has certainly um, lit the blue touch paper. And the um, Professional Jockeys Association uh, released a formal press release. It, it, it came out virtually concurrently with the BHA's um, press briefing, so that rather caught the BHA in the hop at the time. Um, and then subsequent to that, uh, um, an, an anonymous, anonymous collection of female jockeys asked the PJA to publish a second statement on their behalf. What did you make of the fact that there were two PJA statements and particularly one from the, the female jockeys? And what did you make of the fact that those female jockeys didn't want to be named? If you don't mind, I'm going to do it in the opposite order. Of course. Right. I'm, going to, I'm going to go with the official statement first. And I just want to stress that I'm framing the, my analysis of their statement within the view that I think there is a behavioural problem across the sport in terms of how people seem to believe that they can talk to others in the workplace. I think we've heard 
people testifying that to in the past. I remember there was a clerk of the course who um, referred to how he was made to feel um, due to the way that um, trainers and other officials um, spoke to him. And I think other officials might testify to that also. So um, I also think that jockeys within um, the industry do take a lot of criticism. You know, they're often the subject criticism by trainers, by owners, by hunters, you know, more widely. So I do, I do understand that they often feel that they're at the end of the line for the inevitable kicking. Um, so I'm not suggesting that any of this is a one-off, and I'd like that remem remembered when I go through um, the, the press release. However, in this context, over these past two weeks, what was being examined was the behaviour of a jockey within the context of a weighing room and the race course. That was what's under consideration here, and that's why they were under scrutiny as a population. Now, in the press release, which I, say, I have to say I found disappoint disappointing, and I use heavy understatement when I say disappointing, there are, there are so many elements of it to it that I just simply do not understand. Um, in the third paragraph, uh, it says, Bryony felt bullied. Now, the disciplinary panel has just found, after a hearing in which both the defence and the prosecution were able to put evidence and witnesses before the independent three-personal panel, that their conclusion was that Bryony was bullied. She, it isn't that she felt she was bullied, she was bullied. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it says, we do not doubt the isolation she has felt. And again, I think that that was uh, seen to be uh, something that the, the discipline panel accepted that had happened. Um, in the fourth paragraph, it says that um, the PTA does not accept the disciplinary panel's findings in relation to the culture within and the collective behaviour of the jump jockey's weighing room, which is a grossly inaccurate and wholly unfair representation of the weighing room, and a conclusion we believe is at odds with the evidence presented. Evidence presented is a key point here. The panel heard that evidence. They heard a series of riders come and talk about that and either now we haven't got their reasons yet they they will follow later on they either rejected it and or they used it as evidence via which to come to their conclusion about the backdrop against this against which this bullying took place later on in the press release the pja says um we were aware of significant failings of the investigation one that was woefully inadequate lacked the necessary independence and allowed outside interference we are aware of significant inconsistencies in the evidence. Now, these points were argued by Robbie Dunn's counsel, and they were heard, and they were weighed by the panel, and we have to conclude, given the panel's verdict, they were rejected. It wasn't a case that uh, these, these points were not heard, that these points were not argued out. They were, at length, and under cross-examination, and everybody who is a member of the press watched them do that. Um, it, the press release goes on to say, most importantly, the PJ and its board had for some months lost confidence in the disciplinary panel due to a number of serious concerns, including the long and striking track record of the disciplinary panel's failure ever to criticise the BHA, its case management and its processes. I mean, to me, this is a, a, a parallel universe, a universe because I'm pretty certain I can remember that the, the uh, disciplinary panel um, criticising the BHA on many occasions. On many occasions, it has modified um, the... Uh, penalties put forward by the BHA or quash them. And fairly recently, I'm pretty certain that I recall, the PJA in public stating that they were quite happy with the strike rate of um, appeals that succeeded once they took them to the discipline panel. But more than anything, what that sentence says to me is it's a bit redolent of the government when the Owen Patterson affair came forward and uh, the Independent Conduct Committee uh, found him to be in breach 
of the standards, the standards of, of the government, of the parliament. And the government's reaction to that was to, to, to call into question the validity of the independence conduct inquiry and not to accept any of the results. Essentially what that, that sentence is saying is that the PJA does not accept the validity of the judicial panel. And, and unfortunately, this is one of the key elements that was put under scrutiny during the hearing. And that is the feeling that in some way, the weighing room, the jockey population, because it, it's such a tough sport, uh, because it's a dangerous sport, um, should be allowed to be ruled under um, different expectations of behaviour than everybody else in the world, every, certainly everybody else in Britain. And that is not something that, that any QC, and there were two of them on the, on, the, um, on the judicial panel, is going to accept. That is just not going to fly in the wider world. Lydia, I want to, to put this um, hypothesis to you. That, that Robbie Dunn's defence bet the house on trying to normalise his behaviour in the context of the weighing room. So using that weighing room as a shield, rather than taking an appropriate measure of personal responsibility. And of course now, uh, Brian Barker QC has, has, has pointed out quite clearly that he feels that he didn't really show the contrition um, that was required. Uh, the, the panel's quite understandably said, well, if that's symptomatic of the weighing room, then the weighing room can, can have it into the bargain, frankly, because we don't like that either. Do you see what I mean? They've, they, what they've yeah. used as their defe his defence is actually something that the panel has condemned. So it was a terrible defence. I, I think it was too. I mean, it was essentially saying that you cannot single out this person for behaviour that is typical in this population and uh, then brought a, a series of testimonies to suggest that that was the case. And I, I, I agree with you. I think it was a very poor... Um, defense. Brian Barker said that uh, Robbie Dunn had shown little sign of understanding or remorse during the six-day hearing and had instead adopted an attack on Bryony Frost's personality to justify his actions. Um, he said that he found Bryony Frost to be a truthful, careful and compelling witness. And I should just say, with further linking back to the PJA official statement, that during the course of the hearing towards the end, uh, Roderick Moore, the council representing Robbie Dunn, acknowledged that there had been a lot of outside white noise preceding this hearing and that, that concerns had been raised prior to the hearing beginning that it would not be possible for a fair hearing to be carried out. And he said, he stated in front of the judicial panel and in front of all the journalists who were, who were watching via Zoom that he felt it had been a fair hearing. I just want to point out some numerous red herrings that are, are floating around about this as well. The, um, the idea that coarse language was in any way pertinent to this, um, it was the manner in which that language was used and the targeting of that language that there was the problem. The Dieter's panel you know, wasn't, wasn't being squeamish about you know, Anglo-Saxon terms. They were considering how those terms were being employed. And then the other red herring, I think, is to do with uh, the male and female change room. It was notable that during, throughout his evidence, um, Robbie Dunn kept referring to the male changing room, rather than I think what we would all expect most British jockeys to refer to, which is the weighing room, not the male changing room, just the weighing room. And so there was a distinction being, being put between the male and female um, changing rooms and questions about whether um, female jockeys were or were not um, made uh, through, in order to carry out the function of their job to come into the male changing room. Lucy Gardner suggested that that was not always the case. 
and I'm sure that is the case. But um, you would think that somebody, when somebody has has reached the uh, level of um, success that uh, a jockey like Bryony Frost has, that you know she should be able to come into the into the, the general weighing room, the male area of the weighing room, without any any concern. Um, my point is that the this this focus on facilities, which is absolutely necessary. I mean, there is no doubt that the facilities need to be brought into the 21st century. They are miles behind. The, um, the, the facilities that are set aside for women are woefully inadequate, and this should have been tackled ages ago, as the female um, jockeys did very much request, and the racing schools also requested from the BHA, um, and the race forces did uh, start moving these things forward. And that, the delay on that is laid, land squarely at the door of the BHA, I would have thought that the race forces need to be taught, need to be put in that frame as well, personally speaking, because I think it's, it's a combination of, of the two things and the slow processes. But the idea that in, in some way that the, um, the inadequacies of the facilities had anything to do with actually what took place here, I think is a red herring, because some of it took place out on the race course, some of it took place in the weighing room. Yeah. It's, not the, it's not the where that is specific here, it is the what. And ultimately, I mean, there was a lot of, there seems to be a feeling that uh, all of this evidence, this counter evidence was given by a series of jobbers. Essentially, we haven't got the, the verdict yet, they haven't got the reasons yet, rather, from the judicial panel. But I think when they come out, they will focus essentially on two things, you know, what Briley Frost said and felt, and what um, yeah. Robbie Dern said, did, and meant by it. And I think there are two other significant uh, witnesses who they used for collaboration. One was the anonymous fence attendant at Stratford, and the other was the former amateur jockey, Hannah Welch. Yes, I think that's right. There's so much surround sound, but when you boil it down, that's clearly what the panel focused on. Her evidence as a credible witness as they saw it, and his evidence, which they have you know, seen as you know, as I say, lacking in contrition and somewhat glib uh, in its delivery. Um, Lydia, just one final point, because time I know, I know is against us. The Professional Jockeys Association, the BHA, um, I'm not saying they're at war, but they are at loggerheads. And I put it to you that unless they find a way together of, of creating a better environment within which these professionals can work, these elite sports people can work, then the sport's going to be in a, a lot of trouble for a long time. And, and that cooperation must happen, surely. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. I think the BHA tried to extend an olive branch yesterday after the hearing. I think the word rancid given within the hearing by the BHA's council of Western has been incendiary. But I do feel that the Jockeys Association, with that press release, seem to have indicated that uh, the course of this independent hearing hasn't in any way given them much cause for reflection, or certainly hasn't given them the right cause for reflection. They seem to be of the same view as they were when they tried to get to bring the matter to a close before the hearing even started, as they were after the hearing. And having sat through every single second of that hearing, I don't think that's a fair thing. I think the, the consensus that everybody's case got to be heard. I think there was strenuous cross-examination. And I just think that there has been a false rendering of the verdict. Uh, it has got nothing to do with the language. It's got nothing to do with the rain room. It was a distasteful targeting, you know, deliberate harassment on and off the track, and occasional cases of dangerous pulling over a seven-month period. That's not the odd swear word, it was the how and why those words were used. That's what the panel found. Now, the Jockeys Association and the individual jockeys, I think, 
would do well to think about what it is that the panel has said, rather than immediately questioning their legitimacy, mm -hmm. rather than immediately thinking that they are in some way above the law or a case apart, reflecting on whether the actual points that the panel made um, have anything from which that they can learn, because I think that is the case. And as I said, when I've started all of this conducting legislation of the PGA, PJA statements, I think that applies across the sport and not just to the way. And just a quick comment on the uh, female jockeys um, uh, letter. Um, they say that they want to remain anonymous because they've seen the um, the, uh, the undue attention, the undue focus that has happened to anyone who's been involved in the case, and they want to stay away from that. All they were saying in, in that letter, as well as pointing out that they had been campaigning for facilities to change for some time, they, they were saying um, that you know, if they can't make up what they didn't see. I mean, there are a couple of sentences that I didn't particularly like. They mentioned uh, that the things that the panel had found to have happened were alleged to have happened, and they also asserted that the BHA was the cause of the leaks to the newspapers. You know, this is the subject of an ICO um, investigation, Information Commissioner's Office investigation, that has not yet been found. But other than that, I thought that their letter actually struck a more sensible tone than the official PJO statement. Well, this Sunday sees the 2021 edition of the Hong Kong International Race Day. Four wonderful international races. Our regular Hong Kong correspondent, uh, Jim McGrath, is, is with me on the line now. Jim, from from your perspective, and, and you spend a lot of time in, in Hong Kong and study it for us week in, week out, what does this day mean to Hong Kong racing? Well, it's an enormous uh, race meeting in its own right, but I think at this point in time, Nick, it, it is really, really important because they have battled the COVID situation very bravely and also spectacularly well. Uh, I don't think they've missed a meeting because of COVID at all. And during that time, there have been unbelievably heavy restrictions applied, so much so that they've had to go to government seeking permission to bring in jockeys in a bubble. It's been a logistical nightmare, but also a logistical triumph for them. And uh, I think the quality of the card, all things considered, is just unbelievably good. And in terms of global personalities involved, do you think that do you think that the club will be will be satisfied with the spread of uh, of people who are, who are attending? Well, I think they must must be because you know you've got uh, high quality fields right throughout. You've got Aidan O'Brien producing his horses. Uh, you've got Yoshito Yahagi and a very very strong uh, Japanese contingent coming over. Uh, they've always backed this meeting. They've always loved this meeting. It's pretty close to home for them, uh, and they've done well. And uh, you know they've got uh, high high hopes again. Also, you've got a, a really good uh, European uh, presence. All things considered, uh, Dubai Honor is a real winner for them. I think William Haggis bringing bringing that over. Pile driver, a Coronation Cup winner coming for the Vars. I mean that's uh, that's really good. And then you, you look at the uh, the cup itself. Uh, Jim Bolger bringing over McSweeney. You've got Bolshoi Ballet, who is a Derby favourite. Aidan O'Brien is much travelled, one in America as well. I mean that's a that's a big feather in their cap uh, as well. So yeah, they'd be pretty happy, I think, with uh, the spread 
the overall spread of this uh, international competition. The one, the one blot and has been for some time has been Australia, but uh, Australia, due to all sorts of different political reasons and also uh, the restrictions down there applied. They've been strong as well, heavy, heavy uh, restrictions. Uh, that hasn't made it possible. But no, I think they'd be very, very happy with this spread. And of course, that's in a sense a shame because of, there's such a strong Australian presence in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, it is Australian racing, basically. If you look at it uh, at face value, the way races are run, uh, the style of racing, even the stewarding, if you like, uh, Australian stewarding. It's um, its really Australian racing in a foreign country. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got a huge Australian presence with the, uh, the, the trainers, David Hayes there, of course, and uh, also um, uh, a multiple champion in Zach Purton, who's always uh, on, the, on the scorecard. What sort of when when you were in Hong Kong when you look at the racing now is there a sort of horse that you identify as yeah that's the type of horse that will do well there that will translate there? Well, if you're coming talking about the international meetings, uh, you've got to have a horse who, who's got the ability to travel abroad and settle into a foreign environment. It's a pretty friendly foreign environment. There's not there's not uh, draconian quarantining or anything like that. I mean, they can go out and exercise every day. Facilities are first class. I mean, that's that's very, very good. But if you're talking about the, the type of horse that acts there, you've got to be able to uh, act on top of the ground. You've got to have uh, the speed to hold your position in races. You've got to be able to break well from the, from the gate uh, and you've got to be able to take up a, a, a position and then be able to quicken. Uh, talking to William Haggis the other day, he was saying that uh, he thinks that it's an acquired taste, Hong Kong racing. He thinks that it's a different style, you know, that, uh, that there is a, a, a tendency to uh, fluctuate the tempo in races and also that they always finish strongly, a la France, I suppose. So, it's um, yeah, it's a different style of racing. More Australian, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's you've got to be able to act, and you've got to be able to act on top of the ground. Jim, thanks so much. Looking forward to it very much. Well, it's Friday, which means it's time for the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. And this week, as you've heard, it's Hong Kong International Race Day. And we're going to have a look at all of the feature races through the prism of those rankings with James Willoughby, who joins me now. Uh, James, where shall we start? Shall we start with the Hong Kong Vars, a race in which traditionally the visitors do extremely well? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Um, first of all, Aki, for in Hong Kong international races, for those people not familiar with the concept, and it's the last great racing festival of the year, really. and Whilst most of the championships around the world have been settled, there's occasionally uh, some very interesting clashes here, most notably featuring Japanese horses who won three of the races uh, last year and, of course, are an increasingly a, a force on the world stage. And they're kind of mixture with sort of Europeans and occasionally, well, the locals as well, uh, primarily, it's very interesting indeed um, from a rankings perspective, and it helps us at the Red Racing Commentary to really shore up the figures. So the Hong Kong Vars, look, the top three ranked horses. This is a mile and a half test, first race of the four. Third ranked Vars, a winner, or oh, sorry, is a 2019 winner, Glory Vars. He's Japanese trained. 
Second is we've got in is Ebaira, who's French trained. She's a four-year-old filly of the Aga Khans. And the top rated horse is Piledriver, trained by William Muir and Chris Grassick now. And he's an improving four-year-old. Now, we reckon that this race is not really up to scratch, to be absolutely honest. Now, that's a strange thing to say when you've got the last two winners. But according to the TRC algorithm, Glory Vars is not quite the force he was. Mogul is a horse who, on balance of form, is not as good as he appeared to show when winning this particular contest impressively. And Pal Driver is an intriguing horse because he's improving. And we know that he's improving because his recent efforts, when we have seen him, have been quite notable for the gaps between runners behind him and indeed from outside of the rankings framework, the style of his victory, uh, typified by his Coronation Cup win, which is probably worth a little bit more than people thought. Um, there was a lot of uh, conjecture about the runner-up Al-Arsi and how he could have been ridden, but I think that disguised the way that Powell Driver won this race. The one worry, Nick, is the ground. It's quite a big horse. He hung when he last encountered a fast surface and it will be fast, of course, at the weekend. But notwithstanding that, the TRC rankings point to him as the most likely winner. And he's one of three Group 1 winners in this field. And uh, we favour him to make it a second Group 1. That would be quite a, quite a moment for the joint training team of William Muir and Chris Grassick if he were to win. He is top rated on the TRC rankings as things stand. And his global ranking is 176. Now, the sprint is a race that I and many others listening to this podcast, James, will not have a clear grip on. But just at first mm. glance, it looks to be Japan's. Yeah, now this is interesting because this is a race that's usually dominated by the locals. And there's very strong sprinting kind of program in Hong Kong. And that coupled with the fact that you don't get that many really impressive raiders and the ones you do sometimes can't deal with the style of racing in hong kong fast ground charging around a bend so it does seem to favor the locals now this is where trc rankings i think are very interesting because by allowing a computer to do the work there is no international bias the computer basically compares one country against another by dint of the exploits of those horses when they're mixed when they are all mixed together and there are three japanese trained sprinters here pixie knight who won the prestigious sprinter stakes last time Resistencia has got some very good form, she has, and was second to Pixie Knight. And then the winner of this race 12 months ago from a wide gate, down on Smash. And the TRC computer ranks those three Japanese horses, one, two, and three, in this particular field, clear of everything else. So Resistencia, who is the top-ranked horse from Danon Smash and Pixie Knight, had a wide draw last time in the Sprinter's Stakes when beaten by Pixie Knight. It was impressive that day, but Resistencia, she had to work her way across from a high draw. She used herself up a bit early. Perhaps she got a little tired um, as a result of that. And we narrowly favour her uh, over Danon Smash and Pixie Knight. And it would be very interesting to see. We're looking for the race to confirm what the TRC computer thinks. That is, that the Japanese form is significantly better than that established locally here. And moving on to the, the mile, we've got a rankings hero here, James. You yes. Know, 60 has been you know, in or around our top 10 or even our top five for a long, long time now. He, he re-entered the charts, didn't he, last week and now sits at, yeah. at, at number eight. 
could he propel yeah. himself a long way up if he if he does well, tidily or not i don't think he can really possibly make it to the top just because we rate the american dirt form so highly this year and nick's goes defeat of the three three-year-olds over there was so strong but you know that Christmas game of like naming records that didn't get to number one and were at number two, like in the charts, even though they became very well known and they were beaten by one hit wonders and the like. Yeah. This, so, is, this so is one of them. This is, the, this is yeah. Ultra Vox Vienna, right? That got kept off the number one spot by Joe Dolce's Shut Up at Your Face. That's right. That's the most notable example. Yeah. Well, Golden 60 kind of is that horse he's been number two to everybody uh he's never quite made it to crc number one despite the fact that he's now 12 from 12 in races we consider to be group races and th- those do include the hong kong uh, uh derby events they're, they're kind of very valuable local events that are basically are of group two or group one standard and he won this race last year really very impressively that's his best performance the, in the this is the hong kong mile we're talking about Longines hong kong mile and the opposition against him here is pretty good. Uh, Danon Kingley, Japanese trained, won the Yasuda Kinnan in June. That's one of their top racers over there. And he's a very worthy horse. He's number 62 in the world. And we have him the second ranked horse. And in third, we have, well, a rare appearance of a 1,000 guineas winner in Mother Earth in uh, Hong Kong, the daughter of Zofany, who's now run, uh, notably, 16 times <laughs> in group races. Even by, even by Aiden's own standards, this is a goodie, isn't it? That is, that is amazing, yeah. 16 times. She's only a three, three-year-old filly. She's won three of them, two group ones. I've already mentioned the 1,000 guineas being the most notable. And plus, she added a French one later on. And she's a solid third here in the rankings. Now, a horse I'm sure that you're keen on here is Salios. Um, Samios is only our fifth ranked horse because his recent form hasn't been that good, but his best form from his Japanese Triple Crown exploits last year, well, that's been recently advertised, uh, hasn't it? Um, in the, by Contrail. <laughs> back home again by Contrail, yeah. And it would be very interesting to see him kind of belatedly confirm what a good horse he is. He's not the only good Japanese horse in here either. Indie Champ who's run 17 times and won four in group races. He's also in the lineup. And there's an outsider, Van der Gaard, a daughter, uh, sorry, a son of Deep Impact, who also bolsters the Japanese challenge. Uh, but really, all eyes on Golden 60. And, you know, the thing is, if he wins this really impressively, there's enough depth in this race to really think that, you know, he might well return to that number two spot that he's made his own in the rankings. Yep. And we move on then to the, the feature race, the Hong Kong Cup. And we've got this clash between the champion stakes runner-up, the fast progressive Dubai Honor, trained by William Haggis, against the Breeders' Cup filly and mare turf winner, Loves Only You, against the local horse, Tony Millard's Panfield, and much, much more besides. Lots of sort of nearly horses from Europe this year, like Bolshoi Ballet and McSweeney. James, this could actually be the race that has a significant bearing on what happens in the rankings next year. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. I think it's actually the deepest race of the four. Um, it really is full of intrigue, this 10 furlong test. And in Dubai Honor, which I think the horse is the horse team up to talk about, we've got a horse who, 
say very quietly, is potentially very good indeed. And he's already shown himself to be high class with his second in the champion stakes to seal away. And his victory prior to that at Longchamp in the dollar, a group two race there uh, over Magni Core. But he's been improving. And of course, the interesting thing from a handicapping perspective here is that he's getting back onto a sound surface. Now, some people think that's a reason to doubt him. And it's fair to say that when a horse has run up a sequence on a softer surface, and that is his best form by a mile, you, you probably would think that. But it will be interesting to see whether he can cope with that ground. He has got some very good fast ground form as he was improving. And as a three-year-old gelding, we know we're going to be seeing quite a bit of him back home again. And he really has achieved a high level of form after a small number of outings. He's three outings in group races and two group two wins together with that away, that second to seal away in the champion stakes. He makes him by far the most likely race horse here, but there are many, many dangerous challenges. And um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether he can pass the test. Oh, the international season, James, just rolls on. It's quite interesting. We are now very nearly at the end of, of 2021. And, and just maybe a final word on which which group of horses has done has done best this year according to the rankings am i right given your previous comments that it is those us dirt route horses that three-year-old crop that kentucky derby crop um rather sadly in the week when medina spirit suffered a, a fatal injury well you and i've talked about this over the years and mostly in negative terms how the american classic horses are not as good as in former years and pedigrees were slipping off and such like. But we've seen a really strong group of horses, not just over middle distances as well. I think of Jackie's Warrior, um, who dominated the sprint scene as well. But it's been those kind of older horse handicap races and the three-year-old races that together have kind of put American racing back on a, at the front foot, really, after it, it's works has worked through and is still working through a lot of the his performance enhancing drug related problems and in next go i think it has a deserved world number one after four group one wins and that really stunning breeders cup classic win um essential quality led a parade of really smart three-year-olds throughout the season didn't quite get it done on the big day but yeah i think you're right that is the group of horses that that are kind of most surprised us during the season but look, you said we were getting to the end of the campaign. Um, watching it all and enjoying it on a regular basis has made me very tired. But it must be nothing like you, sir, who's basically attended most of the, <laughs> these. <laughs> Is it time for a rest over Christmas? Um, yeah, I think it might be. I think it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely shattered. I'm not surprised. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's quite a pleasure to be able to talk about what yeah. you love on a on a regular yeah. basis and without without wanting to sound too um uh trite james and and without wishing to try and sort of put anything that's that's happened this week into a into a corner or anything like that yeah. i i've spent quite a lot of today interviewing people for the rory mcdonald community award for the last few for the godolphin stud and stable staff awards yeah. I mean, wow, there are some people who do a ridiculous amount hmm. uh, just because they want to and for absolutely yeah. no reward whatsoever. So the game does and, have quite a lot of them. And, and, and don't you think that applies particularly on the international level as well? 
that you know you get particularly with with flying grooms and traveling head lads and and people who you know <laughs> there's plenty of people i know who are slightly windy about traveling in aircraft but it's not nothing compared to having a half ton beast alongside you, I imagine. And just to just really, you know, like you, you got in our lifetimes, uh, professional lifetimes in particular, looking back at like how we used to struggle, and the efforts uh, of people and the skill and understanding and learning of like how to ship horses around the world to the point where now we find ourselves in 2021 and you never even think about it, do you? You never think, I wonder how that horse is acclimatized. You automatically take it for granted. That they can turn up anywhere on the globe these great horses in top shape and that's down to the people who look after them and shepherd them and they do a magnificent job I, I i totally agree well thanks to james jim and lydia that's all for today um i get the honor of giving you the tip for the weekend and i think midnight shadow can double up his uh, victory from cheltenham last month by taking the racing post gold cup at Presbury Park tomorrow. Uh, that's it from me, Charlotte. We'll be back this evening and I'll be back on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.